The call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in verses 1 through 14. Let us hear God's Word. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repairs according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Amen. And so far the reading of God's holy word. Let's together now offer up the sacrifice of praise as we sing together hymn number 10. O come my soul, bless thou the Lord thy maker. If you're able, please stand to sing. Number
you will please remain standing and turn to hymn number 582. My hope is built on nothing less. 582. Please be seated. Now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. O 
Almighty and eternal God, it is our great privilege, our great delight, as well as great responsibility to come and gather in Your presence to praise Your great and glorious name. Indeed, we would take up the exhortation of the psalmist read in our hearing, and that which we ourselves have sung. We would bless You, O Lord, and we would seek by Your help and through Your grace that all that is within us be brought to this glorious task to bless the holy name of the Lord our God. We would seek to praise You for all that You are. You are the great triune God of heaven, the one who rules and reigns, seated upon the throne of the majesty in heaven. You are the great God of all Your glorious works, Your works of creation and sovereign providence, and supremely Your great work of redemption. We would indeed, O Lord, seek to praise You for all that You are and for all that You have done. We come, our Father, then to confess our sins, to acknowledge that by nature we are lawbreakers and rebels, not deserving the least of Your goodness and kindness. But we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to be merciful and gracious, even to sinners such as we are, that You are slow to anger. You are bound in steadfast love, that You are the God who does not deal with us according to our sins. You do not repay us according to our iniquities. And for that, O Lord, we give You thanks even as we would come to confess our sins, the sins of this day, the sins of this past week, sins of word and thought and deed, sins of commission and omission, sins of doubt, sins of unbelief, sins against Your love and against Your light, O Lord, that You have granted to us, even for all of these sins, O Lord. We pray that You would forgive for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and remove them from us, we pray, as far as the east is from the west. Show compassion to us, O Lord, even as a father does to his children. Lord, have mercy upon us. We come then, Lord, with our prayers of thanksgiving for You have indeed been good to us. We thank You for all of our temporal blessings. We thank You for providing for all of our physical needs. We thank You for food upon our tables, clean water to drink. We thank You for the shelter of our homes in still the hot summer season. We thank You, O Lord, for the relative measures of peace and freedom and security that we enjoy day by day in this our land. We thank You for the love of our families. We thank You, O Lord, for our employments. For all of Your good gifts, O Lord, we give You thanks. Most of all, we thank You for our spiritual gifts. 
We thank You, O Lord, for the gifts of repentance and faith, that You again call us, O Lord, when we stumble and fall, to repent, to turn, and to return to You, O Lord, giving us even those very words to speak, to speak the words, O Lord, of the mercy of the God of heaven, and to call upon Him even in His Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the gift of faith that we might believe in the one that You have sent, the one indeed who is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We thank You for Your grace, O Lord. We thank You for the increase of that grace day by day and for persevering in that grace. We thank You for enabling us so to do, O Lord, even through this past week with all of its ups and downs, with its trials, with its difficulties, with its disappointments, with its frustrations, with its weariness as we walk as pilgrims through this dark world. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You, O Lord, for Your strength. We thank You that we are found gathered here calling upon Your name this morning. Thus far, O Lord, have You helped us, and for this we return our thanks. Our Father, then we come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We pray for this world in all of its need, in all of its darkness, in all of its lostness. We pray for those parts of the world that are particularly troubled by war and strife, violence, conflict. Have mercy, we pray, O Lord. We remember those who are bereaved, who have lost loved ones. We remember those, O Lord, who may be injured and maimed by violence. We remember, O Lord, the, those who may find difficult to find shelter, those, O Lord, who may be hungry, those, O Lord, who have to seek far for clean water to drink, many of the benefits for which we have just given thanks that we enjoy in plentiful supply. Lord, we pray, have mercy in temporal matters on such who find themselves in these circumstances today. But most of all, O Lord, we would pray for their spiritual needs. We pray, O Lord, that You would be that bread which has come down from heaven in Your Son to satisfy hungry souls. We pray that You would be that living water that their souls stand in need of. O Lord, we pray that even in the midst of great adversity, might they be drawn to the cross of Your Son and even to come to know Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Father, we pray for our own nation. We pray for the leaders that You have placed over us, the leaders at every branch and every level of government in our land. Lord, in days where there is great clamor of voices, where there is great suspicion as the default hermeneutic in the hearts and minds of men, women, boys, and girls, when there is great uncertainty, great anxiety and fears in the hearts of men and women, boys, and girls, Lord, have mercy upon us. We pray that those that, those that You have placed over us might rule and administer according to justice, according to righteousness. Deliver us, we pray, from the mere policies of men. Deliver us, O Lord, from those who think themselves sufficient to the great problems of our society. 
turn each one rather to yourself and to your Son, and then grant, O Lord, that they might, having turned to you, be able to fulfill their office according to those who know the Lord. Even for those who do not, O Lord, we pray that you would grant them common grace, that they might acknowledge you as the sovereign, even as Nebuchadnezzar did as of old. We pray that in such uh, being beneficiaries of common grace, they too might fulfill their office according to wisdom from above and according to that which is right and that which accords with Your Word. Father, then we pray for ourselves, even as we are gathered here as a congregation. We remember those who cannot be with us today, wherever they may be. We remember those who are traveling, whether it be on vacation or by means of other uh, circumstance. We pray that You might be with them. Watch over their goings out and their comings in, we pray. We ask for those who are sick and ask that Oh, Lord, You would have mercy upon them today. You know each one and their circumstance, those with long-term health concerns, those who may have come down sick this past week. Whatever the details may be, O oh Lord, we pray that You would be their sufficient portion and that You might be the Lord who is their healer even today. Father, we pray in particular as we pray on for baby Charlotte, we ask that You would be with her and help her following her surgery. We pray that her recovery might continue, Lord, even perhaps with some ups and downs. Lord, we thank You for sustaining her life thus far. We thank You for the wisdom that You've given to physicians and to uh, attending nurses and all of the staff in the hospital that have been the means that You've been pleased to use to uh, sustain this little one. We're thankful for medications, O oh Lord, for surgical interventions, for all of Your good gifts and a common grace. Lord, have mercy upon her, we pray. We think of Mark and Nicole and the other children too, that You would help them, grant them strength and grace, we pray, even day after day as they look on and see uh, this little one in these uh, circumstances. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would be their refuge, their strong tower, that they, they would know that You are the Lord who is the rock and who is, O oh Lord, the great salvation of all who trust in Him. Father, then we ask that You might be with each one of us today, even as we are gathered here. You know our hearts. You know our cares and concerns. You know, O oh Lord, our joys. You know our perplexities. Lord, as we walk this veil of tears, we are thankful, O oh Lord, for the return of this your day, for the great blessing that you have purposed it to be to your people. Grant that we might turn to you again and know the great balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to Mark's Gospel, and this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, commencing to read at verse 18 and reading through verse 27. 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, commencing to read at verse 18 and reading through verse 27. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of the Holy Word of God. Mark 12 at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, that is to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. And thus far, God's holy word, please be seated. And now again, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to ask for help as we would hear the Word of God proclaimed. We ask that You would deliver us from any mere words of men, that we might hear only the Word of the one true and living God. We ask that You would send Your Spirit to preacher and hearers alike, that He would come and do that work, He would fulfill that ministry which is His alone, to take the Word of Christ and to make that Word a living Word, even to the salvation of sinners and to the building up of the saints. Deliver us then, we pray, from all distractions. Grant, O Lord, that we might hear and that we might respond in faith to all that You would say to us this morning. 
here as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and this morning we are going to commence reading at verse 15 and read through verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9, commencing to read at verse 15. Again, please give your careful attention as we read God's Word. Hebrews 9 at verse 15. Therefore, He, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Whenever an inheritance is mentioned, people's ears prick up. When there is a will, am I mentioned in it? Am I named as a beneficiary of the person who made it? Few things stir up interest and even gratitude like a generous inheritance to the beneficiaries. It's recorded in history that on his death, Julius Caesar left each Roman citizen two and a half months' wages, a very generous distribution of his extensive wealth to each and every Roman citizen of the empire of the ancient times. That certainly stirred up interest and even gratitude in the empire of Rome 
upon Caesar's death. The Bible records another inheritance, another inheritance that should stir up even greater interest and gratitude among the beneficiaries of the will that distributes that inheritance. That inheritance is left also for a vast host of beneficiaries. It's not just a few who will benefit from this will. The inheritance is both freedom from the condemnation of sin, and it is the great gift of everlasting life. Who has left such a will to so many? Of course, the one who left this last will and testament is Jesus Christ, God's own Son, God's own Son and heir who died so that sinners might live. Going back for a moment to the death of Julius Caesar, in his famous funeral oration by Mark Antony, if you know the history, you may know the speech, you may even have learned it at some time in your schooling. You may remember Antony comes and says, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Well, in that famous funeral oration, Antony later, in perhaps words not so well known, pointed to the wounds of Julius Caesar, because you remember he was assassinated. He was stabbed numerous times by conspirators. And Antony makes the connection that despite this violence that brought the life of Caesar Julius to an end, It was from those same wounds that the many gold coins flowed to the citizens of Rome because of his death. His will came into operation, and they inherited some two and a half months of wages of that time paid out in gold coin. As we think of the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, Christians point to wounds also, but not of a murdered Caesar, but they point to the wounds of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Those wounds by which our eternal souls are redeemed and through which flowed the blood that washes away our sins. It is not to the blood of a mere man that we think this morning but to the blood of the person, Jesus Christ. Yes, in His human nature, but to the wounds of one whose death is the means, the effective means of our great salvation as believers. And so, this is the background as we come to our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 15 through 22 where the author continues the theme of the superiority of the blood of Christ. He does so by concluding that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. 
which may be also viewed as a last will and testament by which believers receive their glorious inheritance. We're going to think about four things this morning. First of all, the covenant mediator. Secondly, a last will and testament. Thirdly, covenantal blood. And then fourthly and lastly, inheriting heirs. So the covenant mediator, a last will and testament, covenantal blood, and inheriting heirs. So first of all then, the covenant mediator, verse 15. As we have seen previously, Hebrews chapter 9 celebrates the superiority of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is superior because of what Christ has actually done in His finished work. He is able to do what the sacrificial bulls and goats of the Old Testament could never do. They could never remove the guilt of sinners. The blood of bulls and goats could never reconcile guilty sinners to the holy God. Hebrews 9 at verse 15 continues on this theme by saying, Therefore He, that is Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, what is a mediator? Well, we might say it very simplistically, a mediator is one who mediates. Well, that is true, but that doesn't tell us very much, does it? So, what is the activity of mediation? What is one doing who mediates? Well, of course, it is one who acts to reconcile differing parties. And perhaps we might be familiar with that general description in various ways in this world. Sometimes when there are countries um, at odds with each other, then they call in a mediator to sit down and try to reconcile them in their differences. Sometimes when there may be differences in the workplace, perhaps between management and employees, then a mediator is called in to try and reconcile the differences. Sometimes in individual relationships where there is conflict, a mediator, one who seeks to reconcile. You get the picture. But in order to mediate, to reconcile, the holy God, and sinful human beings, it was necessary that someone acts more than just to get the parties to sit down and to talk. Often that's what's focused upon, isn't it, in mediation in matters of this world. But in order to mediate between the holy God and sinful humans, 
The text tells us that the mediator, Jesus Christ, had to die. The first covenant, the old covenant made under Moses, required the obedience of the people. They had to fulfill all its commandments, else they would be condemned and suffer the penalties, the curses of the covenant. Its key words, the key words of the covenant, were expressed in the giving of the law to which the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they said. Exodus 19 at verse 8. But the terms of the covenant were such that if they failed to do that, if they failed to fulfill their word, if they indeed transgressed the law of the covenant, then that covenant demanded God's punishment on their sin. Commentator Philip Hughes puts it like this. He says, quote, The inability of man to keep the law's demands made unmistakably clear his guilty state before God. Man's great and radical need is justification. But the law can never justify the lawbreaker. Despairing of his efforts to achieve righteousness by his works, man's only hope was to turn away from himself and to seek the refuge of faith in the pardoning grace which he had been promised. Thus, the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And there, of course, is quote in Galatians 3, verse 23, end quote. And so, it is only the death of Christ that can release sinners from the curse of the law. We read that also in Galatians chapter 3, this time in verse 13. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so, in the death of Christ, God's just wrath is satisfied so that He may look upon sinners with blessing, with peace, without any compromise to His own holy nature. He can be both just and the justifier of ungodly sinners like you and me because one died, the Holy One, in the place of such sinners. Hence, Paul goes on in Galatians 3 at verse 14 to say, He redeemed us so that... In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised, the promised Spirit through faith. And so, this is the topic, this is the theme upon which the author to the Hebrews is dwelling in chapter 9, verse 15, where it shows the result of Christ's death. Therefore, He is the mediator 
He is the one who reconciles God and man. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Do you see what the new covenant does for you, Christian? It secures that eternal inheritance that God promised to Abraham. Remember the promise back in Genesis 17, verse 7, where God promised Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. How is that fulfilled for guilty sinners, Jew and Gentile, ethnically speaking? Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, who are Abraham's true descendants, those who, like Abraham, trust in God, in the one whom God has sent, the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ the Lord. Well, that then brings us in the second place this morning to a last will and testament, verses 16 through 17. It's at this point that the author to the Hebrews introduces the idea of a will. Now, the Greek word for will is the word diatheke. We don't often go into the detail of quoting specific words, but it's important here this morning. Because the Greek word diatheke not only can be translated will, but it's also the same word that is used for the word covenant. And so diatheke is the New Testament word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for covenant. So when you read the word uh, in Hebrew for covenant, barith, um, if you uh, read the Greek translation, the Septuagint, you'll see it's translated diatheke because that's how it's rendered. Um, but here, it's also used to uh, convey the idea of a will and testament. Now, let's come back to the idea of a biblical covenant. What is a biblical covenant? Well, it's been described in many different ways. Perhaps one of the best succinct definitions is this. A biblical covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions. A commitment with divine sanctions. In other words, it is a solemn, oath-bound arrangement which stipulates terms for a relationship between two or more parties. Again, for our children, if you think of your children's catechism, doesn't go into all of that detail, does it? But it, it encapsulates, it includes some of the some and most important elements of that. When what is a covenant? It's a, an agreement between two or more parties, right? And if you know that one, you can come and say it to me afterwards when the service is over. Um, you see, we build from even the earliest days with our children in catechism. We don't give them all the words. Uh, when they're real little ones, they couldn't perhaps get into a commitment with divine sanctions, solemn oath-bound arrangement, stipulating terms. They can't get all of that, can they, when they're young? But they can get, it's an agreement between two or more parties. And then as they get older, then we start to build on that until we can get a more full-orbed understanding as we have here before us this morning. So let me encourage you just by way of uh, a sidebar application 
parents to our children, younger children in particular, start with the children's catechism, with those very simple, short questions and answers, and then move to uh, more extensive uh, to the Baptist catechism as we use it with our uh, teenagers and uh, uh, our adults for these things. Well, here then, as we come to this word and this idea here, the author of Hebrews um, capitalizes on the word play here, the fact that this one Greek word can be rendered will and covenant. Uh, he makes much of the meaning and use of this word in these two ways. Uh, we note here that this is the only time that the word diatheke is actually used in the sense of a will in the New Testament. All the other places, the context makes clear it's referring to a covenant specifically. Um, but here he has that idea in the background, but more specifically what's in the foreground here is the idea of a will, a last testament. What's his point? Well, the author's point is that the new covenant may be viewed as a last will and testament. You can think of the covenant, um, that's commitment with divine sanctions in terms of a last will and testament. And particularly think of it in that way because he's going to speak about an inheritance. And of course, the idea of inheritance fits uh, properly and well under the idea of a will and testament. Of course, particularly what's in view here is the fact that the inheritance, the benefits of the will, are not dispersed, as we would say. They're not given to the beneficiaries until the death of the one who made it, verse 17. Now, if you have any familiarity with a will, and as you get older, perhaps you might even have been the beneficiary of a will, uh, or perhaps you might have been involved in the administration of a will. You might have been the one who had to do some of the work in the um, uh, administration of assuring uh, the relevant parties that the death has been established of uh, the person whose will it was, and therefore it is now legitimate and proper to uh, give the inheritance to those named in the will. You may have some experience of that. But most of us, I think, know what a will is about, even if you've not been personally involved. Uh, someone lives their life, maybe, and we hope and trust, perhaps in most cases, of many long years, and through those years, they accumulate a certain amount of wealth in this world, don't they? And the purpose of the will is to make arrangements for the distribution of that wealth after the death of that person. And so when they die, the death, first of all, has to be certified. And he refers to that in verse 16. Uh, typically, in our modern um, Western jurisdictions, that's established by a death certificate. I remember administering those myself for my parents and uh, uh, obtaining a properly certified death certificate. And then you take that along with the will, and then you gather in assets if they are um, deposited elsewhere, like at a bank, for instance. And um, if you turn up at the bank without that certified death certificates, um, they might be very polite to you, but they certainly will not release the asset. 
You can say you are whoever you are. You can say I'm the executor of the will. They say, well, we understand that. But we must have the properly certified death of this person before we will release the asset to you. That's the idea here. The will is not operative, you see, until the one whose will it is has died. And so that's the picture here. It was by his death that Jesus made all the riches that are found in him available, distributable to believers. It required his death. It was not operable. They could not receive them until he had died upon the cross. Specifically, the blessings of his covenant obedience. And so when Christians are joined to Christ in faith, we are made heirs of the great inheritance and we receive of the distribution of His last will and testament. And so this overall picture here connects with one of the great messages of the whole of the book of Hebrews. And that is that in Christ, believers have privileges of membership in God's family. Salvation in the book of Hebrews, as elsewhere in the Scriptures, but specifically here, is viewed as Jesus revealing God's great redemption to sinners and then declaring before the great court of heaven. Hebrews 2 verse 13, Behold, I and the children of that God has given me very much pictured in familial terms. As we come back to specifically Hebrews 9 this morning, we see that that familial relationship includes an inheritance for those children, an inheritance. Paul makes that much more um, specifically clear. Romans 8 verse 16, He says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so as heirs of Christ, as believers, we inherit all the blessings that Christ has which He gives to us. What does that mean, practically speaking, for you, Christian, this morning? What are those blessings? It means that God is our Father, and we are His children. Whatever else you may be undergoing in this world, whatever difficulties you may face, if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. It means He takes a fatherly interest in you. He's working in you, molding you, conforming you to the image of His Son, teaching you His ways, discipling you, bringing you to that great harvest of righteousness that the Scripture speaks of, even as the author does in Hebrews 12 at verse 11. It means that God watches over you with His loving care. It means He sends His Holy Spirit to indwell you and to empower you 
to live a life of godliness and holiness. It means that you receive the great gift of eternal life. And we could amplify and further and further extend and meditate upon the great blessings of the inheritance of being Christ. Paul does that again and again, doesn't he, in his many letters. But we leave it there for now this morning. What I want to note under this heading also is that the enjoyment of those blessings has already begun. We've already begun to receive the inheritance in this life. Though, of course, we will enjoy it and receive it to its fullest extent later. But we want to see, first of all this morning, that we've already begun to receive this because the one whose death was required to secure these things, has died and has risen again and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have inherited, we will inherit. When it comes to our death, we will enjoy these things to a far greater extent when we know the perfection of our soul in the intermediate state if Christ has not returned at that point. We will receive resurrection life, a place in the glory above to see our Savior face to face, to be with Christ forever. But that's not the fullest yet of the inheritance. When Christ comes and returns, we will receive it and enjoy it an even greater enjoyment when there is perfection of both body and soul in the glory of heaven above, when our bodies are resurrected from the graves, reunited with our souls in the fullness of resurrection life. The Apostle John speaks of that, doesn't he? First John 3 verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John says, you're already that. You're already beneficiaries. You're already those who are entered into the inheritance. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What a wonder this morning that we are the beneficiaries of this greatest of last wills and testaments. Perhaps you're thinking it would have been great to receive the gold coins of Caesar upon his death, his great generosity and beneficence to the citizens of Rome. This is far greater, far, far better in that grammatically incorrect phrasing of the apostle. Remember, when he reflects upon what it's like to be with Christ, he kind of piles up those comparatives and superlatives in a way in which you wrote, if you'd written that in your Grammar 101, there'd have been red pen all over it, saying you can't say it like that. It's not correct to put English together like that. But Paul does it to, to make that striking, uh, compelling point that to enter into this inheritance, to be a beneficiary 
of the last will and testament of Christ is better, far, far better. And so is our great privilege this morning as believers. Well, in the third place, then, that brings us to covenantal blood, verses 18 through 21. The author turns again now to the example of the old covenant in verse 18, where he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The word therefore here is a connecting word. It refers back to what he said in verse 15. Christ having died as a ransom for those who sinned under the first covenant. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The following verses, verses 19 through 21, amplify the relationship between Christ's work and the old covenant. And so these verses here recount the ratification of the old covenant under Moses that we read of in great detail in Exodus chapter 24. And I would refer you there to read of those details. Sufficient to say this morning, Moses began by reciting the whole law to the people at that time, after which, as we noted earlier, the people replied, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Exodus 24, verse 3. The next morning, Moses offered sacrifices to the Lord and sprinkled the blood against the altar and over the book and the people. That's in Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. That's the incident of which um, the author to the Hebrews here is drawing our attention. Because then in verses 21 and 22 of Hebrews 9, the author goes on to observe just about everything was sprinkled with blood. Just about everything. The blood of the covenant showed the penalty. The penalty for breaking the covenant. But it also pointed forward to the great work of Christ and the new covenant in Him. And that's why the author in Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, conversely, with the shedding of blood, with the death of a suitable, appropriate sacrifice, forgiveness may be received. So you see the two truths that are being taught here. No shed blood, no forgiveness. But with the proper, appropriate blood shed, the appropriate sacrifice, forgiveness may be received. And the point of the author here is that the new covenant brings such forgiveness because the appropriate sacrifice, Christ Himself, has been offered. Verse 15, Again, He is the mediator of a new covenant, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ is that one. He is the true substitute who came to bring true, real forgiveness for the sins of sinners like you and me. Of course, our Lord ties together what we read of in Exodus 24 in His own words as He was gathered with His disciples uh, at Passover on the night before He was betrayed. 
Remember, as he was instituting what we call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes an explicit link and reference between his own death and the blood that Moses sprinkled on the people under the first covenant. We say these words very often as we gather ourselves as a church at our Lord's table. Remember Matthew 26, verse 28, as Jesus took the cup, what did He say? This is My blood of the covenant, He says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant. The very same phraseology and picture of Exodus chapter 24. And as he uses that referent, what does he say about his blood, this blood of the new covenant? It's poured out for many. For what? The forgiveness of sins. The blood that Moses sprinkled, in reality, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sins. In and of itself, it was ineffective. But it was effective in the sense that it pointed forward to blood that would be shed in the future, the blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross at Calvary that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. And it's that blood that He applies to cleanse all those who come to Him in repentance and faith. That's why the author makes this very well-known and succinct statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Once we have sinned against God, as we have all done in our father Adam, there is no way for that sin to be put away except by the shedding of blood. That's what the Scripture makes absolutely clear. It's the price of redemption, a price that we cannot pay ourselves. Our blood will not pay the price. What we need is someone else's blood, someone to pay the price as a substitute in our place, in whom is the power of eternal life, the author of Hebrews has told us. What does that mean? It means that all those who were saved under the Old Covenant and all those who were saved under the New Covenant are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and only by that blood. Those under the Old Covenant looking forward in anticipation of the shedding of that blood and those where we are now under the New Covenant looking back to that having been done. But it's one and the same blood that saves each and every saint, Old Testament and New Testament. That's the truth of Scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the application of that blood to guilty souls by faith, the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no cleansing for sin. There is no release from guilty conscience. We were thinking about that in our Sunday school hour. One of the great benefits of our justification, adoption, and sanctification, peace of conscience. Would you have peace of conscience this morning? 
There's only one way, by the application of the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What were the terms of the covenant? Even as Moses told the people, perfect obedience. If you have done that, you do not need the blood of Christ. I say that very carefully and very solemnly because I don't want anybody to think, well, then I'm okay. But that's what the Scripture says. If you have done what these people promised to do under the old covenant, all these things we will do, you do not need the blood of Christ. God will accept perfect obedience. That was the terms of the covenant. The problem for you and me and for the Israelites of old was you have to do it personally you have to do it perfectly, and you have to do it perpetually. Now, is there anybody here this morning who wants to say they do not need the blood of Christ? I don't want anybody to jump up and get us all disorderly, but I'll wait another moment so this weighs upon our consciences. Anybody who wants to say, I've done this personally, I've done this perfectly. I've done this perpetually. I guess we have no takers. And that's exactly how it should be. Because none of us have done that. I will start hand here. I have not done that. And I know you have not done it either. Because we cannot. Since our father Adam fell in the garden, it's not just we haven't done it, we cannot do it. It was the absolute folly of the Israelites to say, all this we will do. It was great presumption for them to say, all this we will do. And it's the same for us if we think, all this we will do. You have not and you cannot. What do you need then? You need penalty-paying bloods appropriate, effective blood, the blood of the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ Himself. There may still be some this here this morning who still yet are in their sins, still with guilt, you may try and shrug it off, try not to think about it, push it away, but you know it's true. God is holy. He demands perfection. He is the perfect God. Without the shedding of blood is the word of that holy God to you this morning. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins for guilty sinners like you and me. What must you do, therefore? Confess your sins today. Trust in the mediator that God has sent, and you will be saved. There will be forgiveness for you if you will do that. Sometimes as the gospel is preached, it can be preached very generally and very impersonally. I want to preach it very personally. If you will confess your sins, if you will trust in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Do you want to put your head down on your pillow tonight and not have a troubled conscience? Do you want to go to sleep tonight and 
as our brother Merv often preaches from his experience of conversion. And if you were to die tonight, you would know that all would be well. There would be nothing left to your account for which you are accused. That can be yours today, but only if you will trust in the one that God has sent and in that blood that has been shed. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood, the hymn writer wrote. But it's only the blood of Christ, the blood of the Son of God, as Paul would say, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, then we come in the fourth and last place very briefly to inheriting heirs. There are three things to note in this passage then concerning the inheritance that come to such blood-bought children, those who are beneficiaries of this last will and testament. First of all, we are to note here that this salvation comes as gift. That's what a will distributes, isn't it? I mean, you don't earn from a will. We've not received our blessings by working for them. We receive salvation as gift, an inheritance freely given. And then secondly then, how great is that gift that we have received, Christian? How great is that gift that we have been given under this new covenant, under this last will and testament of Jesus Christ? As Christ's heirs, Christians receive all that Christ received from the Father, but the greatest of those gifts, indeed the greatest gift itself, is God Himself. God is not like some over-busy, absent father who sends gifts to his children but never turns up himself. Perhaps, sadly, in this world, people have had too many experiences like that of a father, one who tried just to substitute the absence of himself, his personal relationship to his children by simply sending physical gifts. God is not like that. The greatest part of the gift in our inheritance is God Himself. What did, what did God promise Abraham under the covenant? I will be your God, He says, and you shall be my people. That's why the psalmist says, Psalm 73 verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What do you know of that, Christian? Yes, it's great for us to reflect and meditate upon the great reality of the forgiveness of sins, the great gift of eternal life, and we rejoice, I trust, in those things. But the greatest part of the gift, the greatest part of the inheritance, the psalmist says, God is is my portion forever. He Himself. How great is the gift of His inheritance to us. And then thirdly, as inheriting heirs, 
what then is the one appropriate response to being such a beneficiary and to receiving such an amazing gift. Surely it is one of overwhelming gratitude, overwhelming gratitude. It is said upon being the beneficiary of Caesar, the people of Rome celebrated when they knew they were getting their two-and-a-half-month wages in gold coin. It said that they cried out, quote, Most noble Caesar, or royal Caesar, they said. They did that because of a mere mortal's last will that gave them some gold coins. If they responded like that, what shall we say? of the great gift of God to us in Jesus Christ. This inheritance, purchased with the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ, ought to lift our voices, or to swell our hearts and souls with the greatest of praise, ought it not? Isn't that how Peter writes it in his epistle? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And he goes into us who has blessed us, and then he goes into the inheritance. If we are those who have inherited from Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, this morning, and as one commentator, he puts it like he says this, we will begin to act like princes and princesses royal children of the God of light. We will worship Him who secured such blessings for us, and the God who is their author with all that we have, even with our very lives." End quote. May God grant us so to respond even to His great inheritance in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the great inheritance, that promised eternal inheritance that He has secured for all those who trust in Him. We pray that You would turn each heart towards Him this morning and even to receive the benefits of that last will and testament, even the forgiveness of sins, even through His shed blood, and even the greatest part of the gift, you yourself, might you be the portion of your people as you have promised forever and ever. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals one last time this morning to hymn number 98. Hymn number 98, Father of Peace and God of Love. Please rise to sing if you are able.
people of God, blessing in his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and grace.